Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. We're here today to talk about summary execution, Seattle assassinations. And Michael, from what I'm told, you are the expert. But before we get deeply into that tell us a little bit about michael and you know tell us about your journey that brought us to this point well you know i i grew up in a family that really cared about people cared about issues and movements and and uh, making sure that uh everyone's taken care of um and so when i went to law school i decided in san francisco and 68 to 71 i said i wanted to be on the side of the little guy against the powerful interests in the, in the people who think they can get away with it. And I wanted to use the legal system as a, we used to call it as a tool for social change. Started a law collective here in Seattle with my brother-in-law and a lot of really good people. Everybody got paid the same. And in that process, I met two wonderful, wonderful human beings, Selmy Domingo and Jean Varnas. They were part of the Filipino community and also part of the anti-Marcos movement in the U.S. that I, you know, I would go to the picket lines and demonstrations against the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. And Gene and Selmy were union activists. They were part of a cannery workers union that organized 1,100 cannery workers. And that's not hard enough. I don't know what is. Um, so it was uh, it was quite a heady time back in the 70s and. Um, 
Gene and Sammy brought me in as the union lawyer. We'd go up and do organizing drives up in Alaska in the summer. And um, so that was kind of, we were also part of a broader movement um, in the 70s and early 80s. Um, Reagan came in and promised a lot of really bad things happening. And so we, I was part of the effort to to try to um, resist the cutbacks, et cetera. So I was really a political activist that decided I wanted to do law. And I um, was involved in a lot of kind of movement type cases in the 70s and 80s. And then, and then the murders happened and completely you know, changed, changed my life. Now, you mentioned murders. What murders were these? Well, on June 1st, 1981, Sony and Gene were working in the local 37 Camry Union Hall, which was part of the International Longshore and Warehouses Union in Seattle. And um, uh, two hitmen, Jimmy Ramil, the trigger man, and Ben Galloy, who was kind of a decoy, uh, at 4 o'clock, 4.20 in the afternoon, they were the only ones in the, in the union office. They burst into the union and um, um, Ramil pulled a MAC-10 45 caliber execution piece out of a brown paper bag with a suppressor on it, aimed at a gene, shot twice, gene died instantly, oh. and then shot so many four times in a swivel chair. And then they exited and went down the alley, and then a, um, a lookout, a guy named Boy Pili, meaning cripple in Tagalog, uh, ran across the street into a quote-unquote getaway car, a black transam, uh, uh, driven by Tony Dictato, who was a union. Um, excuse me, he was the head of the gang. It was called the Tulasan gang that these all these guys were all members of. So believe it or not, Selmy with four forty-five caliber bullet holes in his stomach, just tore his stomach up, mm-hmm. chases the hitman out of the union hall, collapses on the sidewalk, bleeding out. And the fireman hears him screaming and comes, the first responder came, responded, and asked someone who shot him. And someone said very clearly, Jimmy Ramil and Ben Gloy, he knew them. And uh, that and, you know, that basically started a, a murder investigation followed by a civil lawsuit that, um, that we brought, uh, resulting in an amazing uh, victory that I write about in my book, Summary Execution, a victory that held Ferdinand Marcos. We proved 10 years later, Ferdinand Marcos had these guys killed. And it's the first and only time a foreign leaders have ever been held liable for the murder of U.S. citizens on U.S. soil. And we won a $15.1 million jury verdict and as well as a judge trial. So, but it took us years and years to basically to pursue justice. And there was a lot of twists and turns, a lot of obstacles that we had to face. Yeah, but that's absolutely understandable. I mean, here you have, like you said, a foreign dictator, for lack of better terms, who was actually attempting to manipulate local politics, if I'm understanding what you're saying, local politics Correct. in your area. Now, unless I'm mistaken, you're implying that he was actually using a local gang to act as his hands. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it took years to prove this, but what happened was that the Ramil and Galois were immediately arrested, and there was a trial for of the hitmen. 
And in the trial of the hitman, you guys aren't going to believe this, in the trial of the hitman, a mystery witness came forward to testify for the defense that he was at this middle-aged guy, white guy, and he said, I, I was at the the uh, uh, the uh, phone booth across, he said phone booths, right? They had a phone booth across the street, <laughs> and he was there trying to get a hold of his, <laughs> yeah, well, this is 81, okay, and there, he said he observed the whole thing. He said a guy went into the Union Hall, came back, running out with something underneath of his arm, got into the green Trans Am and drove away. He walked across the street and, and, and said, what happened, what happened? Because the guy was screaming and yelling, and he asked him, who shot you? And the man who was injured, who was selling Domingo, said, I don't know. And we were going, what in the world? Who is this guy? So the jury kind of didn't believe him and convicted Ramil and Galois anyway. But then we took the guy's deposition. His name was Levane Forsyth. And it turns out that Forsyth was an informant for the FBI, who, whose modus operandi, we found out, was to be told to go to a stand in a particular location, go to a restaurant, go to a park, whatever, observe what happened, and write a report, which is exactly what he did in this case. So we knew then, because this guy appeared trying to exonerate the hitman, we knew then that some very powerful interest. This was not a local kind of gang shooting, hot-headed Filipinos shooting it up in the Union Hall, right? Mm-hmm. This was like, whoa, the FBI knew about this thing. What? You know, he didn't just happen to be there, right? So um, that, that causes a lot of suspicion, and so we started investigating and found out that we did a Freedom of Information Act against the FBI and the, and the uh, Naval Investigative Service out of Alameda County Air Station because they, both of them, the, both of these organizations had infiltrated the Union of Democratic Filipinos. That was an anti-Marcos organization that Gene and Selmy were labor leaders of. They were you know, high-ranking members of this very militant, very prominent anti-Marcos group in the U.S., and they had ties in the Philippines. Well, Gene, two months before he was killed, had traveled to the Philippines and met with the leaders of the large anti-Marcos labor federations. Marcos was having trouble with his rule because he had the New People's Army, the guerrillas in the countryside, and then he had the labor movement in the cities. And so we believe that Gene had been surveilled at the meetings with the head of the unions, the federation, and then he and, and Selmy Domingo go to the international convention of their union, which is the Longshore Union. The Longshore Union on the West Coast loads and unloads all the commodities go to and from the Philippines. It's a hugely important union to the Filipino community, and Hawaii in particular. And guess what? They engineered the passage of a resolution that, that dispatched an ILWU investigative team to go to the Philippines that they would have led, they would have been on it, to go to the Philippines and investigate the deplorable treatment. I mean, people were getting shot at picket lines. There wasn't any right to strike. The unions in the Philippines were really in bad shape, were, were really under, um, under a lot of heat. So well, these two guys so engineered this passage of this great resolution, and a month later they're murdered. Well, how in the world are we going to f- figure out, well, how, so what does that have to do with the murders in Seattle, right? So guess what happens? The Marcos decides he's going to kill the leading opponent to his regime, which is Benigno Aquino. When he gets off the airplane, I don't know if you guys remember this, in 1983, the leading 
moderate opposition to Marcos decides he's going to go back to the Philippines and run against him. Well, that that didn't last long. He set foot on Philippine soil off the plane and got gunned down by Marcos's military. The same people who killed Gene and Selmy. Well, Marcos gets overthrown because his wife, Cory Aquino, takes up the People's Power Revolution and overthrows Marcos. So Marcos flees to the United States after being told he had to leave uh, the Philippines by the Reagan administration through the then-governor Paul Laxalt in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So guess what? When he gets onto the to U.S. soil, we slap a subpoena on him in our lawsuit because we had sued the, the originally had sued Marcos and the Philippine government. Well, excuse me, so we guess, but guess, I'm just curious. How do you feel about the current government in the Philippines with Rodrigo Duterte? I mean, is he just as bad? Oh, yeah, he's terrible. I mean, he's one of the chronic human rights violators of all time. Guess what? His national security advisor, a guy um, a guy that his national security advisor was a, a NISA, a Marcos spy in the U.S. between 1978 and 1982. And Esperon, his name is. But at any rate, that's why I call the book Summary Execution, because that's what Duterte is doing. He's killing, it's not just drug dealers and drug users, they're basically the poor people, and now he's going after his opponents. But, but, he, um, uh, but just to, I was going to ask you, didn't he recently um, uh, take control back from the police because they were going a little too far with it? Who, Duterte? Yeah. No, Duterte is all, in Davao City, he had like three, some 3,000 plus people were summarily executed. No, you know, no arrests, no trials, no jury, no, you know, judge or anything. They just off them, just kill them all. Oh, right. But what's but important about it was, going on, it was it was going on a lot. But I mean, I, I heard recently that he had tried to scale it back, get it more under his personal control, that it was the police were just taking it a little too far. Have you heard well, that? might be that? true, but, but he started the whole thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, that's, his, that's his plan for how to deal with the drug problem is kill everybody. And, and that's policy. Uh, were you afraid at all during all of this? I mean, after all, you're deeply involved in it personally and uh, professionally, basically. So you're not afraid they might turn on you and go after you, too? Mm, good well, sure. The Seattle Police Department told us we had to wear bulletproof vests and carry a firearm for our personal safety and believe I did. I was in the Army. I could shoot a forty five. I had a forty five, And we wore bulletproof vests for the first six months until three of the gang members were convicted. But you ask about how do we link the Marcos regime to the gang? Yes. When Marcos, when Marcos fled the, the, uh, the Philippines for the U.S., we subpoenaed his records and in his financial records because he had stolen like $30 billion from the Filipino people and he wanted to know where in the world all of his money was. So he brought, he brought his financial records. There was a two-page document. There was an itemization of expenditures out of the Mabuhay Corporation, which was used as an intelligence slush fund. And it had payments to... Uh, uh, illegal campaign contributions to Ronald Reagan. It had a lot. It, they were buying uh, radio stations and propaganda vehicles. This was an attack by the Marcos regime on, on the on our country, but particularly on the anti-Marcos groups here. Well, on May 17th, there was an expenditure out of this intelligence slush fund called a special security project of $15,000. That's the day where the guy who provided the gun and the money for the hit 
flew to San Francisco, met with the lieutenant colonel in Marcos's military, flew back, provided his gun, the MAC-10 45 caliber execution piece, to the hitmen and paid them for the hit. We proved this in court, and a federal judge ruled and the jury ruled that that was the instrument that was used, that was the intelligence slush fund used to pay for the murders Marco, through, uh, through, uh, through Marcos. So Marcos' money hired the hit team, and the gun was a Marcos ally guy named Tony Baruso. And Tony Baruso wasn't even charged by the local prosecutor until we proved our case against Marcos 10 years later. Then he was charged and convicted of murder. Well, Mike, this this almost sounds, from what you're describing, connecting the weapons to somebody almost sounds like Fast and Furious. Would, would that be a, uh, I'm would not that sure of the illusion. There's no cars involved. It's over a transam, I guess. Oh, no, no, where, where you're able to actually connect the weapon to a, a, a leader. Now, let, let's back up just a little bit because I want to clarify this for the listeners. Are you saying from our earlier discussion that the FBI knew about all of this? And if that's true, how much resistance did you run up against in your investigation? Huge resistance. Huge resistance. In fact, it's still going on. Tomorrow, we're going to go to the FBI office and say, let me, let me back, back up. So we take the FBI informant's deposition, but the judge said, look, I don't want to hear anything about the U.S. government. I want to hear, if you, I'll let you try your case against Marcos. Judge Rothstein was a great judge, and she allowed us to try a case against Marcos, and we won that case. So when I'm researching this book 30 years later, I bring a Freedom of Information Act against the FBI saying, give us everything you have on this guy, Foresight. That was the name of the FBI informant, because he had testified he'd been an informant out of Los Angeles, out of Southern California, for an IRS, DEA, FBI task force into, into money laundering and drug use. And that, and he, he, he said you know, he had nothing to do with the Seattle FBI, according to him. Well, guess what? We brought this Freedom of Information Act in June of 2015, almost three years ago. And the FBI has now been forced to admit it has 1,276 pages on the use of this informant out of the Seattle office of the FBI. So we're going to go in tomorrow, and we're going to say, look, you, uh, I'm here to report a crime. The FBI has obstructed justice by sending their FBI informant to watch this murder happen and then to testify to try to exonerate the hitman, the Marcos paid hitman. Mm. And so we haven't got a single page of that. And they said, well, the name of his control agent is personal privacy. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, well, wait a minute. You don't even know if the guy's alive. You're not getting his name. I said, I tell you what. I'll send you the name of the 42 FBI agents in the Seattle office of the FBI. We had their names because they were involved in the investigation of the murders. You think that went anywhere? They, 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 they worked on this case for a year, and the FBI never brought any charges. Mike, I'm a little and they said, hazy about I said, all you have to do is – I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to ask you. I'm a little hazy about this mystery witness, as you refer to him. He's an informant for the FBI. Did he just happen to be across the street, which seems highly coincidental, or was he placed there, or was no? He was put there. He was put there, knowing this was going to happen. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. So, so he's a plant. 
He's a plant. A, a, a false listen, witness. Listen, let me tell you what the, what the guy testified to. He testified that he was close with the Hughes Empire. He, worked, he used to work for Howard Hughes. His son still works for a Hughes company. You remember Howard Hughes, the guy that, he's, he's like the Koch brothers of the 1960s and 70s, right? He ran Las Vegas with Paul Axel and his lieutenant was Robert Mayhew. I know this sounds like a big conspiracy theory, but believe me, I've got it all documented, and it's in a number of different books about Hughes. Robert Mayhew was close with Forsyth because Forsyth testified in a case that about the control of the Hughes Empire on behalf of Robert Mayhew. Robert Mayhew was the man, that, the ex-CI agent, that Kennedy administration used to contact John Roselli and Sam Giancana of the Mafia to assassinate Fidel Castro. That's who Forsyth knew, and he knew Paul Laxalt, the governor, former governor of Nevada. He testified to this. He testified under oath. So we think that either the, the FBI office out of Seattle or someone within the Hughes operation back in the 80s knew this murder was going to happen and put their guy there to watch it come down. And then when it went bad, when Selmy was able... See, if Selmy doesn't get out of the union hall, it's an unsolved murder, isn't it? Nobody's going to be able to figure out who did this. Yes. But Selmy named the hitman. So when the FBI informant was there, he saw this happen, he gets on the CB radio and calls his control agent and said, hey, you're not going to like this, but this guy just, you know, he just named the guys who shot him. Well, so I, that, let me ask that, you that question. Um, I'm curious about this. I mean... Now that the case is basically done and you're running into this trouble writing the book, uh, what have been the repercussions for you and for those involved in your organization? I mean, how has this affected your take on things and what you'd be willing to do now uh, concerning what happened? I mean, has it affected you uh, negatively this way? Or, I mean, it would me, honestly. No, it hasn't affected me negatively. Obviously, we had to keep under wraps. It wasn't just we were only worried about the Tulasan gangs. We were worried about Marcos agents. Marcos agents were at our demonstration. They would take our pictures. When we filed the lawsuit against the Marcos government in uh, September 1982, Marcos was here on a state visit to Ronald Reagan, and our, our investigator happened to be a Catholic priest. Bill Davis got Marcos served at the National Press Club, and boy, every time we went anywhere in D.C. after that, we were, we were followed by these big bodybuilder types. But you know what? I, you know, my, my personal safety is, not, is really of no concern because, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to buck it up and say, I, I don't really care. This is such an outrage that the Philippine government under Marcos could come in and murder my friends. Somebody was my best friend, murder these people in broad daylight and then have the U.S. government, you know, involved in covering this up is just unacceptable. Our government should be protecting us, not helping foreign dictators, uh, well, you know, run their own. Uh, they, they don't seem to be helping people when it comes to Vladimir Putin, who seems to be pulling the same sort of thing, for instance, in the U.K. What I'm wondering, too, is... Don't you uh, think? Uh, you would think they That's would. what I think. <laughs> we had a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Eric Nalder, a great guy out of Seattle, say that, what you just said. In this day and age when foreign governments are running 
you know, a- a- efforts to, you know, uh, affect our democratic processes. Uh, we can't stand when a dictator like Ferdinand Marcos or a Duterte, for instance. Just imagine if Duterte decides he's going to send his agents into the U.S. to go after the international human rights lawyers, including myself, that are calling attention to the abuses there. Mm-hmm. And just well, think if the, uh, if the Trump administration of- supported that. Have you heard of anything like that? I mean, this happened with uh, no. Marcos, but you haven't heard of Duterte trying to influence anything in the United States. Not yet, but we're very concerned about it. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I would think so, because the man is a dictator. There seems to be no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so are you still actively involved in all of these organizations? I mean, are you still doing good work? Or? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not... I mean, the, the anti-Marcos movement isn't still around, but the human rights movement still is. Sure, I'm, in, I'm involved in all right, of that. And, and, uh, as a, yeah, it's a legal uh, authority that's helping to you know, resolve issues. Yeah. And, you are okay. Well, the so, public the Public Justice Foundation is a national public interest law firm, and I was the former president of it. 
and they're they're very uh, active in making sure that you know uh, human rights are respected. And American Civil Liberties Union is 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 obviously another group that I belong to that's also you know very active in protecting our civil liberties here. And and this murder, could you? Is there anything more you could tell about this? Because it's really pretty fascinating to me. Well, I mean, the, the yeah, there's one other story that will blow your mind. So I mentioned that when Neil and Deloitte were the trigger men in the, in the decoy, Boyd Peli ran across the street and gets into Tony Dictato's car. Well, Neil, Deloitte, and Dictato are all convicted of murder. But Peli absconds. So we don't know where he is, but I heard when he might be in Maryland. So I go back when we filed our lawsuit, and I was back in D.C. for a national press conference, and we filed a lawsuit, and I happened to be staying with a friend in Maryland, and I look up in the phone book, a guy named Dominguez living in Chevy Chase. Well, you know, that's Boyd Peli's real last name. So I call the house and say, hey, is Boyd Peli there? And his mom answers and says, no, he just left. Who's calling? So they had an arrest warrant for Peli because he was implicated in these murders. But they didn't get him arrested in Maryland, but he comes back to Seattle, and I did a stakeout at the Bush Hotel looking down at the gambling houses where Peli was known to frequent, and we had an informant inside the gambling houses. And sure enough, there's Peli. So I get him arrested by the police department, right? Oh, you do? Yeah, I, I called up the detective, a great guy, John Boatman. I said, John, you want to arrest Peli? Where is he? Where is he? Because he had solved the, the you know, he, he was the main police officer for the Ramil and Beloit trial. He and Mike Kando, great, great homicide detectives. I have no beef with the Seattle Police Department. They were fantastic. <laughs> so then what happens is, yeah, we have people in the Philippine community. They gave us a lot. They said, you know, Mike, we never would have made this case if you had not gotten Filipinos in you know in the international district to come forward and talk to the police they never would have talked to us because i told them look you know look gene and Sammy fought for you they fought for housing for low-income people they fought you know for parts for the international district they fought against the regime in the philippines you, it's time you stepped up and go to the police and tell them what you know and people came out of the woodwork yeah so they give me a lot of credit fight, for that right i mean this this yeah. has been a big deal because once they go to the police it's sort of a matter of public record. It could be, and then their lives could be in jeopardy, right? It, oh, they were freaked. Oh, three of them had to have police protection going in, into the courtroom. They had to, the police had to sit with these witnesses because they, you know, people. It was a very intimidating murder. Broad daylight, boom, boom, six shots of a forty-five caliber execution piece. Forget about it. Anyway, back to Pili. So Pili gets arrested. We go to the prosecuting attorney's office and say. Okay, great. You've got Peli, charge Peli with murder, and then turn him to testify against this Marcos ally who provided the gun and the money for the murder, right? That's how it works, right? Yes. Oh. And, and I, said, yes. I said to the prosecutor, Norm, if you let Peli out of jail, he's a dead man. And they let him out of jail, and a month later, he had two bullet holes in his head. He was so, killed by a guy named Esteban Blanc from the Philippines who had $100, hundreds of dollars in his pocket. And he, he came here, he committed these murders, and he went back to the Philippines. It, so that hitman, that BP guy, the one guy that could have implicated the higher-ups, was snuffed out by the same people that killed Gene and Selmy. 
So, Mike, uh, let me kind of amend what you're saying there. And, and I sympathize with this absolutely because I work in law enforcement. And I am now a shift lieutenant in the corrections uh, community. And oh, good for you. Thank you for your service. <laughs> oh, thank you, Seriously. sir. And, and I agree with you. There are times where prosecutors or even de the defense attorneys will say, don't let this person out of jail because we're working on something very sensitive. Now, that's a very difficult thing for us to do without a judge signing a detainer or, you know, we can kind of shift them around right. in the system 72 hours at a time. You're an attorney. I mean, you know exactly what I'm saying. But you're saying, yes. did, did you have a judge's order? I mean, how did they let this poor guy go knowing that he was going to be, you know, for all intents and purposes, assassinated again. Well, it, it was it was crazy. I mean, they, what happened, let, let me tell you what I think. This is in my book. My suspicion is that when this guy Forsyth testifies, is an FBI informant coming in to testify under oath that somebody didn't even know who shot him, trying to exonerate the hitman, that the prosecuting attorneys got a little nervous because here's we're claiming that Marcos was involved. And of course, early on, we didn't have a whole lot of evidence. We eventually produced all that evidence of the intelligence slush fund and, and used to pay for it. But I think they got spooked. I think, you know, to charge Tony Baruso and uh, Peli was kind of like, oh my gosh, we're, that might lead up to the Marcos regime. And, you know, that's nothing that anybody wants to take on easily. Plus the fact Peli wasn't exactly a sterling witness against Baruso because he was, and he was a gangster, you know. So, but that's who you have to, you know, you know better than I do. That's who you have to, sometimes you have to call people who aren't that savory. But uh, in order to move up the change, our strategy was to shake the tree of all the low-lying fruit, which was the hitmen, to go after the higher-ups. I mean, there's no full justice unless, every, unless everyone who is involved, including those that were covering this up, uh, are brought to justice. So, so what do you think is the upshot right now? I mean, where does all this stand for you? I mean, what, if you had to do a summary review of, of where it is right now and what's still outstanding what isn't, what would you say? Well, first, this is my book, Summary Execution of Seattle Assassinations of Selma Domingo and Gene Perrius, tells this whole story. But part of it that isn't over yet is our recent discovery that this guy worked for the FBI office in Seattle. This wasn't just somebody who worked out in Southern California. He worked in Seattle. He was from this area, the FBI informant. So what we're going to do is, is say, hey, we want to report a crime. We want a crime investigator. We want the U.S. attorney in this jurisdiction to investigate this as a cover-up, as an obstruction of justice. Why is the FBI office helping, you know, helping the hitmen to kill American citizens at the behest of a foreign dictator? It's unacceptable. Our FBI can't be doing that. And they have to be transparent. So our big effort right now is to get those documents, 1,276 pages. Wouldn't you love to see those? Of course, we'll, if we get any of them, we still want, three, and a half, three years later, we don't have a single page. How can they, no, I, how can no, they prevent? I was going to ask you, what do you think? You personally think the odds are of, of, of getting this, of getting these papers? I think we'll get, well, first of all, I think the FBI has got to give us 
the some of the documents that they're going to redact. They already told us that they're going to redact the name of the control agent. And we're going to say public interest outweighs the personal privacy of an FBI agent, the, the control agent that, that, that may even be dead, that, that therefore has no personal privacy issues. So we're going to fight that out. The FBI guy says, you're not going to get this guy. I said, you're not going to give it to him, but the judge may order it. So we'll file a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit to get the name of this guy. And then we'll try to find out if he's still alive and what he knows. So, Mike... I mean, that's, you know, so, that, you know, I, I thought this book was kind of like the, my bucket list of one, the culmination of my career. I'm retired. I write this book. Then all of a sudden, now I'm in the middle of a further investigation into how the FBI put this guy at the scene of the crime. Oh, well, it looks like you have a sequel. Yes, you, you should have known better. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> look at the conditions. Look at all the news today. Um, having said that, let me ask you this, um, because, man, you, you've got me. And you said a word a little while yeah. ago that, that our, our usual host, Al Warren, he would chuckle at. But, doggone it, I'm in charge today. You said the word conspiracy. So let me ask you this, because everything that you have said today points towards an absolute conspiracy. Have you filed a Freedom of Information Act on all of this? Everything you've said today, I'm sitting here thinking, Freedom of Information, yes. Freedom of Information, Freedom yes. of Information. But, yeah. and, and what well, first of all, we proved a conspiracy. The judge and the jury found that Marcos and all of these people engaged in a civil conspiracy. But the judge had already dismissed the U.S. government out because there wasn't any real theory of liability. Because we didn't, you know, we didn't know that this guy got run out of the Seattle office of the FBI. Foresight. Yeah, I've, I, I have, you know, I've got 20 boxes of documents in my garage now of all these filings and everything. I would say probably eight of them are Freedom of Information Act responses. A lot of redactions, a lot of stuff that we challenged and tried to win. But, you know, back in the 80s, it wasn't that easy to get good rulings. Well, I understand the part about Marcos and the conspiracy, but I'm a little vague on the other part of it. Are you saying the FBI and our government is actively involved in the conspiracy? And if so, why? What would be the purpose of it? Is it was, was it at the time to protect yeah. the Marcos regime? Great question. Mm -hmm. That's that's the essence of, of of this issue is what you just asked. So, Marcos comes into power, you know, freely elected, declares martial law, and gets the support of the United States government. And then, under Carter, everything was kind of going south. They, the, the the State Department really didn't like Marcos's human rights violation because they declared martial law. But Reagan, when he came in, promised to cooperate with the Marcos regime in going after the dissidents in the United States, believe it or not. We have this, I mean, this is in writing. And Marcos touts the fact he's got a new friend in the White House. So now the FBI and Navy thinks that they, they can go after these guys. I'm talking about the anti-Marcos organizations, including Gene and Selmy's group called the Union of Democratic Filipinos. That's where the conspiracy is. If you for check this out, Naval Investigative Service had hundreds and hundreds of pages on the Union of Democratic Filipinos in their files, and in order to go after a domestic organization, 
the Navy, like any military, has to get an executive order signed by the president to infiltrate this group. They got it. They got an executive order allowing them to infiltrate the Union Democratic Filipinos with their agents, their spies and their informants. And that's how they found out about Gene going to the Philippines. Because why they, he goes why through. Why so intent on shutting down these groups? I mean, they were distanced. Subic Bay. Subic Bay, the big Navy base in the Philippines, was so important to the Navy oh. that they didn't want this anti Marcos group, you know, getting into the base, trying to talk servicemen into giving them supplies for, you know, for the new People's Army, giving them medical supplies. Didn't want any problems with, uh, you know, with naval naval officers kind of deciding to. To, to you know, be against the war in Vietnam back in the early seventies, and and then eventually to, to support Marco. So it you know there were strategic reasons why the Navy was investigating it. And would you say backfired because the subsequent presidents of uh, the Philippines closed the base down? So was that like a response to what the U.S. government was doing, or do you think not it- really? I think they closed it down because they realized that U.S dominance of their culture and their politics and their military wasn't really helpful. I mean, this was under Cory Aquino, you see. Marcos was overthrown. Once Marcos was overthrown, the U.S. military wasn't nearly as endearing to the Filipino people. They were just a Navy base and a you know, Clark Air Base, and, you know, that wasn't any benefit to the Filipino people. Well, actually, wasn't one of their biggest sources of income at the time? No, not really. Not, I mean, not because you know, remember after the war in Vietnam there was a step down. So by the '80s, you know, there's very little activity going on in those bases, and, they, and you know they they kept them open through the '80s, and then they basically shut them down. I think it was in the '90s. Oh, see, because on the yeah, that was like because of really the strategic, big, you know, a lot of employment for the local Filipinos, and that sure. it, it, and that's would be detrimental to them. But you know, I, I would. But you remember all the base jobs. decommissioning? What's that? I would think that that's a lot of employment, a lot of U.S. dollars, everything flooding into the area. In the 70s and 80s, yes, but not in the 90s. Yeah, you know, because... Yeah, Yeah, that's why I asked, because uh, what what I got at the time was from the news media, and you know how that can be. So, actually, what I heard most about was Imelda Marcos and his shoes. (laughs) Oh, you know, I, I took I took I took a deposition and I took Ferdinand Marcos's deposition. And the one question I never asked them was the shoes. Oh. The reason being is she was the power behind the throne. She was, I mean, she was a dragon lady. This woman was vicious. She said, "Oh, all the shoes." You know, she's kind of crazy. She's got all the shoes. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, the stories go on and on about Melda Marcos's. Um, uh, you know, treacherousness. Did you personally and, you know, take the depositions? I took them both. Oh, wow, that's impressive. Nice. So you met, you met them. You are the gift that keeps on yeah. giving. Read the book. Hey, let me, let me, t- can I tell you a real quick story about the Marcos deposition? You guys will laugh. So it was at, on his veranda, it was in Hawaii, and uh, we were intent. We had a videographer, and we we're intent on the question and answer. And I asked him, "Could you explain to the jury why you declared martial law?" And Marcos goes, "Well, there was communists were bombing the buildings, there was chaos in the streets." 
And I said, well, okay, but um, in fact, under the Constitution of the Philippines of 1936, you were limited to two terms, weren't you? And just when I asked this question, one of these indestructible flying Hawaiian cockroaches comes sailing through the windows and lands on Marcos's shoulder. Now, neither Marcos and I even noticed him because we're kind of intent on the question and answer, but the videographer was going, what in the world? And the cockroach is kind of, you know, looking at the camera going, hi, Mom. And so, <laughs> and so what happens is I said, uh, he goes, no, no, that's not true. And just then the cockroach like, goes straight for Marcos's neck. It's like the, it's like the cockroach of truth is going to bite Marcos in the neck if he tells a lie, right? Or it was so his lawyers, uh, Richard Hybe, his lawyer sees this cockroach, and he, he, and he knocks it off his shoulder, and Marcos, without missing a beat, Looks at his lawyer and says, was that the wrong answer? <laughs> True story. We played, a, we played his deposition to the jury. The jury just howled. Oh, was that the wrong answer? Hold the phone. Hold the phone. Was that the wrong answer? Because, <laughs> you know, he declared martial law because he couldn't run again. Communist in the streets. Come on. <laughs> well, so, so Mike, what, what's coming up next? What's next for Mike? Well, it's the big, huge um, commemoration of the lives of Selma Domingo and Jean Baroness book launch party next Tuesday, March 20th in Seattle, Washington. And we have, we hope the governor, Jay Inslee, will stop by. Our congresswoman, Pramila Jayapal, will, uh, has, has uh, recorded a video. We've got guy, people from the ACLU, uh, state senate, uh, uh, people that were involved in the Committee for Justice, and and I'm, I'll probably say a few words, and we're gonna we're gonna sing the uh, martyr song, which was by the Seattle Labor Course, which was written right after the murders. You know, you know, we never said it would be easy. We never said we'd all see it through, but somehow we thought we'd be going on. We, we'd never be going on without you. You know, it's about Gene and Selmy. So it won't be many dry eyes, but that's going to be a big deal. And now with this FBI issue that was cropped up, we have a FBI, a petition to the FBI saying we need you to give us these documents and then open an investigation into your role in, in sending your FBI informant to the scene of the murders. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Am I blowing you guys' minds? <laughs> well, you laugh a lot, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, uh, you blew my mind in the first five minutes. Because, it's amazing, really. I mean, this story is just so full of twists and, and tangles. Um, I, I have to ask, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. Now, we've talked a lot about the FBI today. And what is the CIA's involvement in this, in, in your opinion? You know what? I We, had, we hired a... Uh, a, a um, former military intelligence officer as an investigator. And the first thing, and to, to find out what U.S. intelligence had, and they, they he basically got back to us and said, this was a hit from the Philippines, mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, look out for A, B, and C, uh, bring a Freedom of Information Act request, that Viernes was carrying a large sum of money to the Philippines, which wasn't true. They had all this kind of documents on them, but the, the the intelligence agent said, you know, the CIA wasn't involved, but Navy was because Navy does, naval intelligence does a lot of the dirty work for the CIA. 
Of course. <laughs> when I interviewed, I interviewed a witness who knew this FBI informant, uh, Levain Forsythe, because he Levain Forsythe tried to claim I was down there trying to call my architect. Well, what's your architect's name? Uh, Alex Bertullius. I go, okay. So I look up Alex Bertullius and I go see him. He's an architect down in Madison Park here in Seattle. And I said, Alex, so we have a friend in common. And who's that? Levain Forsythe. He, he looks at me and goes, oh. Well, he's CIA. I go, what? Oh, yeah, he's a spook. So that, I mean, I didn't believe that. I don't, I don't think that's true. But what we were told was CIA wasn't involved, but the but Navy was. Right. And you know what? I, I have to be a little bit jealous here because I'm Army. And why is it the Navy Same has here. all the good assignments? There might be a reason for that, Kevin. I can't tell you how many times I've said the same thing. I'm Army. My dad was Army. My two uncles were full bird colonels in the Air Force, and we just were envious of the Navy. What can I say? Yeah. Well, the Navy's sort of noted for its intelligence, isn't it? I mean, I I don't know much about the Marines or the Army by comparison. I mean, they have it. Yeah, Mar- it's always Navy intelligence you hear about, it seems like. Yeah. Maybe they just have good, uh, you know, PR. Or they're not. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think because it's because they don't know how to stay secret. <laughs> so there. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a two army man. Ah, well, there you go. Well, everybody, we've been talking to Michael today, and his book is. Summary, Execution, The Seattle Assassinations of Silme Domingo and Jean Viernes. Did I say that right? You did. <laughs> and you like the accent there? <laughs> yeah, you know, the interesting thing is Viernes is Friday in Spanish and Domingo is Sunday, and the hitmen on their way in to kill him were reported to say, these guys are Sabado, Saturday, meaning they're not going to be anymore. See? Now you tell me that's not a conspiracy. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.